Thanks. All right, good morning, everybody. I just wanna welcome Arthur Cohen who's with us this morning. It's a big covet for us. He is uh, a big expert in Marina Vukum or to say for Marina Vukum. So it's a pleasure. I'm not gonna be quoting any Marina Vukum today, so I'm not hopefully not gonna go wrong in that regard at least. <laughs> um, also welcome you, Brian, straight from Alabama via Nashville or Nashville via Alabama. So, all right. So last week, just to, just to get to uh, some context, and actually I was thinking, if you, anybody has been actually looking at the subject matter titles, you'll see I've been trying to get to Yeshua Kronos. I don't think I'm getting to it again. So um, it'll probably be uh, Mershem next week. So what we discussed last week was the Misa, the story that's brought down in the Talmud of Ilfa and Rabbi Yechanan. Ilfa and Rabbi Yechanan are two students at that time, and both of them are Talmudic prodigies. Both of them are fantastically able in terms of their uh, ability. They're, they're very precocious, and they end up deciding that they need to go out and earn a living. Why? Because they are simply unable to make do. Their families are straining under the circumstances. So the Gemara brings down that they decide they're going to go out to make a living and they leave the yeshiva. And when they leave the yeshiva, this should remind everybody of the hakdam of the Tzais. Tzais has a hakdam where he talks about how he can't leave his bed. He can't leave his bed to go look at his farm. He's mama, she's huddled in his rags and his blanket because it's so cold and he doesn't have the money for heat. Over here, thank God, uh, the... Uh, the heat is working, and I think it said what you said was about 60 in there. Yeah, but there's a lot of wind. Nope. All right. Well, it's not like the Tzais. But because Arthur is here and he was friends with my grandfather, my wife's grandfather, Zev Rosenwald, I'll just say one thing that he said, and I think I may have said this. I apologize if, I, if I'm repeating myself. It's not yet because of age. <laughs> he said to me, he gave me a, a test. When I came, my father-in-law had passed away. I never met my father-in-law. My wife's father passed away before I ever met her. And when I came to Chicago and I was getting engaged, um, shortly thereafter, I went to meet him. I went to meet Mr. Rosenblum. He, was, uh, he had a bookstore in Chicago called Rosenblum. I believe it's still maybe called Rosenblum. It's still, even, even Matt Michelle, like 20, 30 years, probably since he gave up the store, they still call it Rosenwood. It's a, it's a place in Chicago. And just to give you an idea about the store, there was a Kanaistic guy who, a person who was very zealous about certain things, who, who was very upset at my wife's grandfather. I knew him in yeshiva because I learned with him for a bit. And, um, and the reason he was very upset at me was because he said he sold all sorts of books that weren't the straight and narrow, even though he had learned Christ and he was a mooncatcher, which like, you know, straight up in the, the you know, the, the middle of the fairway in terms of his religiosity. As he told me, he was very proud of the fact that the Satan Ruff came to my home, the Satan Ruff came to my house and he ate fish, not meat, he ate fish. He would never eat in anybody else's place. He shackled his own, he, he would eat chicken, but he would never eat meat anywhere outside of his house. And when he was younger, he shechted his own meat. Later on, I think when he was older, he got it from other places. But he was a shechet, and he was very mocked on certain things. And one of them was kashras. And so the uh, 
it was a very point of big pride for him that the Satmar of came to his house in Chicago and ate fish. Say a quick tangential story about eating and the people who are very stringent about eating. People may have heard of Rablazer Silver. He was a goin. He was a genius, an absolute brilliant person. He was a student from Chaim Oizer Grzanski. When he was in America, he was uh, one of the last people who wore a top hat. Nobody wore a top hat. He still wore a top hat. People like thought he had no style. You're wearing a top hat. The top hat has gone out already 30 years ago. He's wearing a top hat in the 1950s. Like, what are you wearing a top hat? JFK already took off the hat by the inauguration, which was the be all and end all for wearing hats in America, right? So they asked him, Blazer Silver, why are you wearing a hat? Why are you wearing a stovepipe? So he would say, I have my reasons. His reasons were that his hat was a fake, had a bottom in it. It wasn't just a hat, it had a bottom in it. And that's where he kept his food because he trusted nobody's food. So he would walk around with his, literally, his hat on his head with his food in his head. The story goes that he came to the Rosh Hashiva his name, of Neri Yisrael. His name was Rabbi Ruderman. And he came to Rabbi Ruderman's house and Kedarka Bakredish, as was his want, they sat down to eat and he took out his hat and he started opening you know, his hat, take out his food to put it on the thing. On the plates there, and the rabbit's in rudiment says, Not on my plates. <laughs> Why? You don't trust my kashras because you don't want to eat by me. I don't trust yours to put it on my plates. He ate by her. Legend has it that Rabbi Salavechik from Yeshiva University came to America. His father was already at Yeshiva University, Rabbi Moshe Salavechik. This is where his son, Rabbi Yosef, did. when he came to America, Rabbi Yosef Salavechik's father. Wanted to show him off. He was very proud of his son. He was a super genius. He was educated in universities. He had a doctorate. He, was a, he had a doctorate in Herman Cohn, like a big uh, philosopher. Anyhow, so he wanted him to, you know, to people should realize what kind of an amazing person has come to America. So he had him give a public shear. And in public shear, he was giving, it was before, it was before Yom Kippur. So it was like going to be like a Chuba Drasha. So he said, Manzin, my son, you have to be worried only about one person in this crowd. Laser Silver knows all the tasted in human by heart. You have to be careful from him. All right. So going back to the previous story. So Zev Rosenblum, this kind of was very upset because he had all different types of farm that he sold in his store. He sold um, Heschel. He sold... Um, books that were not from the orthodox stream. He sold books from conservative rabbis and reform rabbis. This person was very upset at my uh, wife's grandfather, how he could do it. So you're in the hot seat. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, he, so, so he was very upset at me. How could he do it? And so I asked him about it, like why he sold all these kinds of different books in the books. He says, I am the bookstore of the Midwest. All over the Midwest, they get books for me. Not all of them are Orthodox. They also need to have books to be able to read. So I carry Heschel. He says, I don't know from Heschel. I said, I know from Heschel. I don't think he was very pleased to hear that either. But I, but in any event, the story that I was going to say was when my wife brought me to meet him, and he was in Ainahara, already probably almost 90. He died a few years after that. And he couldn't walk. He had a very you know, bad neuropathy. And he was sitting in a chair and um, he believed that it was his job to fahir me, to see if I was holding. He started asking me questions. So I started answering and firing back. My wife giving me glares on the other side of the table, like, 
enough. It's never going to end. You have to let him win. So eventually I got the lesson. It was very hard for me, I have to say. But the, and I, he said to me, after he beat me and I didn't know, I said, oh, that's a, where is that? What does it say? And he says, uh, like with a with a uh. So I remember that 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 yeah. And then he says to me, not that wasn't enough. And then he says to me, you're never gonna amount to much. <laughs> I said, okay, and why is this? He says, you know, when I was in Chis, I, there was a thing, it's called S and Tag. They used to go and eat the different people's homes because there was no food in the yeshiva. The yeshiva didn't have enough money to provide sustenance for the, for the people. They stayed in people's homes and they ate in people's homes. And sometimes there was simply not enough food for the townspeople to give to the boys. There wasn't enough. So he said when there was days when we didn't have enough food, I went back to the yeshiva and I learned and I was hungry. He says, you've never gone to bed hungry just being full on Tyra. And I said, this is true. I can't understand. I can't relate to such a absolute mysterious never. So that's a long-winded tangent, which we really haven't started anything yet, to explain the concise about the cold and this tent. Okay, we're good. Let's move on. So back to our story with Ilfa. So the Gemara said that, that Ilfa and Rabbi Yechanan, who were both very prodigious young students, very precocious, they had to go out to work because of the fact that they did not have enough food to get support their families. And as they went out, Ilfa and Rabbi Yechon are sitting under a rickety wall. And Rabbi Yechon hears a message from some sort of a, an angelic voice, an inner voice, something he hears, a premonition that tells him he has got to, uh, that tells him he has got to go back because the voice says, the, 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 the line from the quote Malachim is that we should knock down the wall on these people. Why? Because they're giving up the everlasting life in order for be able to enhance their, this worldly life. And the response from the other Malach to the first Malach is, no, 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 no. We have to not kill them. Why? Because one of them, the because is one of them that's going to manage to have a special time in the future. It's going to be something that's going to come out of this one. And Rabbi Yechonin asks Ilfa if he hears this message, if he hears this conversation. And Ilfa says, I heard nothing. And Rabbi Yechonin says, Sariah, it's a proof that if Ilfa doesn't hear and I heard, that must be that it's for me, that I'm going to hear something in the future. That I'm going to be able to attain something in the future that I don't have today. So I'm going to go back to the yeshiva and I'm going to be living in difficult, dire straits, but that's what I'm going to do for Torah. And so that's what Rabbi Yechanan does. And Ilfa doesn't hear. He goes out and goes into business. And as the Gemara continues, Rabbi Yechanan becomes the Rosh Yeshiva. He becomes the great rabbi. And Ilfa becomes a businessman. And the Gemara says that when Ilfa comes back, people are telling him, listen, Mr. Ilfa, <laughs> Had you stayed around, Rabbi Yechon wouldn't have been the Rashiva. It would have been you. You're the big, you're the Grace of Kanaka. You're the big guy. You were even more intelligent. You were even more precocious. You would have gotten it. And Ilfa is very upset. He climbs up to the mast of a ship. But of course, he's coming back from his seafaring voyages where he was trying to do business. So the whole thing is all iterations about the voyage, about the boat. And he comes back and he ties himself to the mast of the ship. And he says, if anybody can find 
something that isn't, uh, that I can't connect back to the initial Taniatic source from the Mishnah, then I should be falling off the ship. Effectively, I'll kill myself if, I, if, if you can just show that I don't have it, that I'm not still holding in the Torah. That is, I haven't lost an ounce just because of the fact that I've been engaged in business for all these years. And in fact, you know, as we pointed out last week, somebody actually does ask him. Nobody's worried about him committing suicide. They decide to challenge him. And who is the person? Some old man decides to challenge him. You would have thought, you know, not, 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 a, not a whippersnapper kid. An older person says, yeah, all right, here's one for you. And he answers the question. And that's the end of the Gemara. And so we pointed out that in the Gemara, it seems to be potentially trying to give you two different, two different ways to take away. One, the Rabbi Yechon gave up everything and he was incredibly successful. And number two, that Ilfa, who didn't give up the, this worldly pleasure, this worldly life, he did go after to try to make himself a Parnassah. He nevertheless was still able to retain his Torah. So in a sense, it's an enigmatic message from the Gemara. What does the Gemara want you to say? That Rabbi Yechon was right and Ilfa was wrong? And why is the Gemara ending off showing you that Ilfa is still holding? Why do we have in Gemara, both in Babylon and Yerushalmi, talking about people who are, who are looking into the Pinkasa of Ilfa, looking into Ilfa's notebooks? It seems from the Gemara that you're supposed to take away that there was validity in both approaches. So what then is the difference? As we made the joke last in the famous story of Rebbe Aaron Cutler, Birchanan had Alam Haza also, and Ilfa didn't. Birchanan had Hamidim for sure, Ilfa didn't. So that is how we sort of left it off last week. And what I'd like to do is go more into the Ilfa story, but this time do it a little bit differently from perhaps a, um, a, a few other Gemaras in relation to Manichan Chaya Olma, Ba'iski Mechaya Shah. But before we do that, there's a Gemara in the beginning, Chagiga. The Gemara in the beginning Chagiyah says over a Misa about a, a person. His name was Rav Idi uh, Avud Rav Yaakov Bar Idi. So his name is Rav Idi, the father of Yaakov Bar Idi. He's Haverogo da Haverozel Tlosiyarche Beorcha Bechadyom Bebei Rav. Rashi says that he would travel three months after Pesach, he would travel three months to go to Yeshiva and he would be in Yeshiva for a day. And then he would travel back three months to be back home with his wife for the holiday of Sukkot, to be with his wife for the, for the next yontem. And the people made fun of him in the yeshiva. They called him the Bar Be'erav the Chad Yerma. They called him the guy who's a student for a day because he only comes to yeshiva for a day. So they're laughing at him. You're nothing. You don't really learn. You don't really study. You're only here for a very short period of time. And the, the person, this, this uh, Rabidi, was very hurt. And he said, he quoted a Pasek that my friends are all making fun of me. I became a laughing stock. So I'm the Rabbi Yechanan. Rabbi Yechanan is the chief of that yeshiva. And Rabbi Yechanan says, listen, please, don't be upset at us so much that it's going to cause the, the yeshiva boys to be hurt. In other words, you're a special person. And by you being upset, you're going to cause heaven, as it were, to put up some sort of a malaise on these boys. Please don't be so upset at us. And in fact, he went out and gave a public address in the yeshiva to try to assuage this Rabidi, to try to make him, to mollify him. What did he say? The Pazak says that 
that during the day you make the drushes. How can it be that the Pasik is telling us that you're learning Torah by day? What do you mean, not by night? You know, the the essence, the, the essential parts of Torah are, come to a person when he studies at night, when he pushes away his sleep to study some more. said, really, what we what we what we should learn out is that just by saying yem yem yedroshin the das darki yachvatzon what we learn out from this is that even a person who only learns a very limited amount of time even a day that person is considered as though he learned all year long. Now, is Rabbi Yechonon really believing this, or is Rabbi Yechonon just saying this? I opened up saying by Rabbi Yechonon is saying this to mollify the student, and I think that that is true. In other words. If Rabbi Yechonah really felt that this drasha is actually substantively true and not just to make this Rabbi Edi happy and not so he should walk around being braggish, being upset at all the boys in the yeshiva, then Rabbi Yechonah could have applied it to himself. Rabbi Yechonah is not applying it to himself. In other words, he could have said, look, I have to support my family, so every little bit that I can learn, whenever I have a chance, so that's sufficient. It wasn't sufficient for Rabbi Yechonah himself. Rabbi Yechonah for Rabbi Yechonah for himself, it was absolutely insufficient to just simply learn a little bit and do his parnasa. For Rabbi Yechonah himself, learning was all, was everything, and the parnasa had to go by the wayside. But for the student to mollify him, Rabbi Yechonah was willing to mollify him. All right. So, as I said, there's a, there's a line in the Gemara that the angels were saying to each other that is a line that appears a few times in the Talmud. And each time it appears is interesting. And it, and it appears in a few different places and only in these few different places. So one of the places where this line appears is in a story in the Gemara and Shabbos. The Gemara and Shabbos says a Maisa about Rabbi Yehuda, who's known as Rabbi Yehuda Bari Loi, who's known as the Rosh Hamadabram Bechom Makim. He's always the one who speaks first in every occasion. Why is he the one who always speaks first in every occasion? The Gemara gives you a background for why this Rabbi Yehuda Bari Loi is always the one who speaks first. And the story goes, the Gemara and Shabbos tells us, that the reason is like this. There was once a conversation. And the conversation was in relation to how great the civilization of Rome was. Look at what they've done. Look at what they've built. After all, maybe the Romans are seen as the destroyers of the temple for sure. And they were certainly much more barbaric in a sense than the Greeks. If anybody is interested, um, there's a lot to read, but if you don't want to read and you want to be somewhat entertained, there's a fantastic debate between Boris Johnson when he's not being a buffoon. Um, he's actually quite intellectual. So him and Professor Mary Beard have it added at which civilization was greater, the Greeks or the Romans. Now we're getting into the Hanukkah. Not a bad time to, to look. It's a fantastic debate. Boris Johnson, is, he's entertaining. He's not, just, he's not, not an academic at all. But he, he knows how to use buffoonery and, and entertainment to make people like him. So combine that with his speaking Latin is, is absolutely beautiful. In any event, so the Gemara is talking about who's, who's a, who, you know, what, how amazing the Romans are. And Jabudavar Loy says, look at the, what they built with these bathhouses. Look at their ability to transport water for miles and miles by these incredible aqueducts. Some of them are still available in Ag. You can see them in Israel and Rome. You can see these amazing places that they built. 
And Rabbi Yossi is extolling the virtue of Rome. And think about it. It's, it's somewhat absurd. Rabbi, Rabbi Huda Bar-Eloi is extolling the virtue of Rome. This is after the destruction of the temple. Right? This is under the Roman thumb. Right? This is under the jackboot of Rome. And Rabbi Huda Bar-Eloi is extolling it. That's the first mandamah. The second mandamah in the Gemara is Rabbi Yossi. Rabbi Yossi Shasak doesn't say he doesn't say anything. Just sits there nodding, smiling, you know, but you don't get a peep out of him what he's actually thinking. He's a bit of a cipher. And then the third is Rav Shem Baruchai. What does Rav Shem Baruchai say? What are you talking about? The Romans, they're terrible. All they ever did was only to only to give themselves pleasure. They built themselves the aqueducts and the and the marketplaces and the great, you know, stadium. All of this just for themselves and for their bloodlust and for their prurience. There's nothing more. There's nothing more valuable and valid than Rome. It almost is, you're supposed to, I think, take from this Gemara, a medrash that appears also right in relation to Eiv, right? Yisroi, right? By, and Bilam, right? The medrash says about when the power was thinking about what to do with the Jewish people, right? So, so, so Yisroi is running away. He's not going to deal with, he's not going to, he's not going to help, right? Eiv, he's, he's silent. Right? And Bilam's like, yeah, raising him on power. Yeah, Pharaoh, go get the Jews. Go get the Jews, right? Sounds almost like this. I think you're supposed to be thinking of that medrash in the relation to this Kumar. All right. So, so the Romans hear about this conversation, which itself is mind-boggling, right? But these are, the, these are remember, the greatest students of Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Akiva had 24,000 students. Again, whether it's apocryphal or little, it's not important. Rabbi Akiva, who had started out not religious at all, who had started out according to one certainly one part of Chazal, as somebody who was against the rabbis, who was, who was very, very angry at the rabbinic life, who was in absolute ignorance until he was the age of 40 years old, turns around his life, he's, he's, he's put into the Talmud as though he was like a, not Moshe Rabbeinu, but in a sense, like Moses. Why? He also lives till 120. He also doesn't get his start until later in life. He's literally 40 years old and he doesn't know how to read. And he progresses during a, an absolute, unbelievable, sustained study period of 24 years, night and day, to becoming one of the greatest leaders. His 24,000 students that the Gemara says did not respect each other, did not treat each other appropriately, who died in a plague, he then has to go and find some new students to be able to perpetuate the Torah that he's learned from his great rabbis. And he finds five. These three are three of the five. And you're supposed to think to yourself that this is the same Rabbi Akiva who was a supporter of the rebellion against Hadrian, right? Of Bar Kochba. This is Rabbi Akiva who, who was darshing the Yerushalmi when he saw Bar Kochba, when he saw Bar Kozib, he said, the Yerushalmi Tainus says. He thought that this was the Messiah. He was very excited about it. Yechim Matorta said that you can have grass growing out of your seat, out of your cheeks before, meaning you're going to be long in the ground before the Mashiach comes. So you're wrong, Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Akiva was very against the Romans. And here you have a student, Rabbi Hudabari Loy, one of his, of his five students, one of his top ones, who was against Rabbi Akiva's Pshat. He doesn't hold Rabbi Akiva's Pshat. He's lauding the Romans. Shem Baruchai is like his Rebbe, right? And he's very against the Romans. So the Romans hear about this conversation and they say that 
he becomes the dominant one. That's how he becomes the Rosh Hamadabra. In a sense, it's the sycophancy that sends him to the top. Rabbi Yaisi, he was silent, so he's banished. And Rabbi Shimbayachai, who spoke against us, off with his head. And so that opens up the famous story of Shimbayachai has to go hide in a cave for 12 years. After 12 years, where he's hiding in a cave and literally subsisting on nothing, that alone is a very interesting Gemara. Why he had to go hide in the cave? He was initially hiding elsewhere, but and his wife was coming and bringing them food, him and his son. But he was afraid. He said that they're going to turn my wife against me because Nashim are dieting Kalas and so therefore he says I have to go hide somewhere else in a place where she can't have information. So therefore they they wouldn't be able to hurt her or torture her. So he goes to hide somewhere else and says in a cave with his son, and they're there literally studying the deepest depths of the Torah for 12 years. After 12 years, they come out. And the Gemara says like this. Now, when they come out, they are, they are, um, they are uh, sort of seeing mundane, inane life. And after living on such an ethereal level, in living in a cave with no distractions and no material needs whatsoever, it's it's an anathema. It's very difficult to sort of make the two work in any way together. And so they are destroying everything that they see. They're destroying everything that they see, and they they sort of uh, the the voice from heaven says, "Get back to your cave, but you're here to destroy my world." The world has to exist. Just because you are such a spiritual apex, you are in the spiritual pinnacle, doesn't mean that the rest of the universe is like this. Get back to your cave. They go back to the cave for a year. They come out after a year, and the Gemara says that Rav Shemachai was now able to live in this world, but his son, Rav Lezav Rav Shemin, is not able to live in this world. The Gemara says that when um, Rav Lezav Rav Shemin would see somebody, he would be he would be looking at them badly, like, you know, destroying them. And Rav Shem would, would would come along and heal them. Rav Shem says to his son, the world just needs you and me to get by. Just to give you an idea. Rav Blazer Rav Shem for just one second. Rav Blazer Rav Shem who cannot adjust to this world. Like Marbo Matia tells us about him, that he was a corpulent individual. And the Gemara says that he also took a job working for the government where he would effectively do what was considered to be the worst sin in Judaism. He would master on people. He would take care of the people who were evading the law. Now remember, what did his dad say in the Gemara and Shabbos? Who was against the Romans? It was Rav by Yechai. He was the greatest enemy of the Romans. He said they're terrible people. And his own son, or blessed Rav Shimon, went to go work for the Romans. And he would be mastering on them. And so they said, they said about him that you are vinegar, the son of wine. The same line that the Gemara and Kulun says that Marukva says about his own dad, because his own dad, if he ate meat today, he wouldn't eat milk till tomorrow. Marukva says about himself that I am vinegar, the son of wine, because I eat after the Suda, after I eat meat, I eat milk. So it's a, it's a line, yeah. So Rebbe Lezabur of Shimon, the Gemara says that he went out and because he was challenged by people that he's such a bad guy, he went out and he cut off a piece of his flesh. He cut out a piece of his, I don't know, 
stomach or something. Any anybody here like the raw food? What's it called? Car- Carpaccio, Scarpaccio, something like this. Yeah. He took out a piece of his raw flesh and put it on the table. And it's like Israel, right? It's boiling hot. It's 100 degrees. And he said, if is any part of me that's not 100% dedicated to heaven, then that flesh should be nisrach. It should become be putrid and rotten and rotten. It didn't. The Gemara says that when he passed away, he passed away at, a, I guess, a young enough age that he had a widow who could be remarried. And Rebbe Huda Hanasi, Rebbe himself, Rebbe was a close friend. The Gemara says a close friend, a, a, a colleague, a study partner with her blessed Ben Reb Shimon. The Gemara says they had some back and forth with each other. And the blessed Ben Shimon felt that he was greater than Rebbe and it led to some complications, but not for right now. Limar says that the widow, that the widow of Rebbe Lezabin of Shimon was approached by Rebbe Uda Nasi and said, maybe you want to be Mashadachmi, maybe you want to go out on a date. And she said that I, who was wed to a tzaddik, should marry a regular person. This is Rebbe Uda Nasi, the person who put together the Mishnah. Which we say, like literally, if not for Rabbi there is no oral law. It's Rabbi who we all go back to for everything. And that's what we say in Barab Lezer, Rabbi Shimon. So these are very complex individuals that the Talmud is layering in in different places, stories about them, to understand the fact that just because we say in one aspect that, oh, he was with the Romans, he was against the Romans, he was this, he was that, all of it was done for the most vital and spiritual of reasons. So here, the Gemara used that line of when they came out of the cave and they're getting angry at all the people because they're working and they're engaged in normal life and normative life. They said, you're giving up for this world. That's the line of the Gemara there. You also find this line, you also find this line in, um, in another Gemara. The Gemara says, the Gemara says in the beginning of Shabbos, the Gemara says uh, that Rava, and bear in mind, this is Rava, we're going to come back to him in a minute. Rava saw Rav Hamnuna, that he was davening along Shemina Esri. He was davening along the, the section of the, of the davening, the 18 benedictions, which takes a while. He was davening it for like an exceedingly long period of time. And Rava got very angry at Rav Hamnuna, and he gave him a line. He said, he said, you're giving up the next world, meaning you're giving up Torah in order to focus on this world. What do you mean this world? He's davening, says Rashi. What is he davening for? What is Rav Hamnuna davening for? He's davening, says Rashi, for for refuas, for healing, for people should be getting better. L'shalim, for peace. L'mazainis, and for food. That's why people beseech God. They pray in order to be able to receive the things that they need. They're praying in order to be able to fill out what they're missing. So therefore, because he's focused on what he's missing, in this world, he's not focusing on studying Torah. So therefore, Rava had at Rabbi Hamnuna. And he said, you're too much focused on your prayers. You're too much focused on your needs and wants in this world, rather than being focused on the spiritual journey that one ought to be on.
There is another Gemara where this comes up. The only other place in, in Bavli that this comes up, this line, and that is in the Gemara in Beitza. The Gemara in Beitza is a very, very interesting story. Remember, we discussed Rabbi Akiva and Rabbi Akiva's students, Rabbi Elihuda Bar Eloi, Rabbi Yaisi, and Mishim Bar Yechai. Rabbi Akiva himself had a Rabbi, right? He had his own Rabbi. Who was his Rabbi? He had two Rabbi. One was Rabbi Lezer, Rabbi Lezer Agad, Rabbi Lezer Ben Horkinus, and the other one was Rabbi Yeshua. And the Gemara says, Amaisa Bar Rabbi Lezer. Rabbi Lezer gave shir on Yantin. He gave a drush on Yantin. If you were here on Friday night, we discussed the Medrash this week. The Medrash says that Rabbi Kiva was, was giving a drasha. The people were sleeping. And we made a joke. How can it be that the people are sleeping? It should be a salve for the conscience of all current rabbis. If you see people sleeping in the class, don't be so upset. Even Rabbi Kiva, people slept in the class, right? So, so the reality is that the people have always slept in class. Okay, this is what it is. When I was in high school, I don't know if it, I, I would say, I don't know if it's like this today, but I know it's exactly like this today because I hear the same thing about my own boys. I hear the same thing that's going on. It's no different. When I was in high school, I remember, you know, people fell asleep in class, ninth grade, 10th grade, of course. But you knew for sure who was falling asleep, like who was wearing like, you know, the cannon, the goose coat, you know? But you walk into the class and you sit down with like the real puffy coat, it's no doubt. And you're gone in a few minutes. And the rabbeim, they would know. So they would open the windows. And they would go and try to beat up the guys. But here, you're a young kid. You're barely sleeping at night. You know, you're having a good time. And now you're being told to, like, study in the ancient book. You know, study the Talmud. Study for five hours straight. It's hard. So especially if it's cold and you're somewhere near the heater, you are going to be gone. Yeah. So Rebelez is giving a share. And it's giving a share on Yantif. On Yantif, there's an, you know, an idea of be with your family to eat meat and wine to have a, you know, a, a fine old time. Rebelez is giving class. And the Gemara says, He didn't just give a class like, okay, I'll give an hour class. It's a circumscribed time. No, he gave class all day. Right? He gave a class full day. What, what else are you doing? You have to learn. So he gave class all day. And this is what the Gemara says, how, how people reacted to the class. Initially, there was a group that left. You know, they went home for the meal. They went home for something. They left. People leaving the whole time during the class. Each one of them is giving a name, an epithet. Each one of them, he's saying bad things about him. He's maligning the people who leave in the class. Yeah. And it, like literally. By the Kat Chamish, just to give you an idea of how bad these lines are, right? The people, like, there's already four groups that have left before him. We're up to the fifth group of people that are leaving the base Madrash. By the Kat Chamish, these people, the fifth group that are leaving the Shir, that's been going on all day on Yantif, they're Bali Kaisis. All they are a bunch of winos. Is wino still is a word? People, it's archaic. Are we allowed to use it? Right? All they are, they're, they're into their wine. Wine, winos, winos. We don't talk politics. Yeah, winos. Yeah. So his Kachish's law says the sixth group goes to leave. He's there like Mamish Tarab, like, like an illness. So then he turns and he knocks out the six groups have left. There's a few people left there. And he looks at them. You have to understand. Belezar Hagal giving a look is a bad thing. 
The Gemara says, in Bamatsia, there are blessed God of what happened when they, they put him in Chem because of the whole Tanashach, a whole, a whole story we can't get into right now. And the Gemara says that one day he was going to, he did, his wife forgot that it was Rejchayish, and he said Tachnon, and she, she would interrupt him every single day, so he shouldn't say Tachnon right after Shmana Esri because he was afraid that, that if he said Tachnon together with Shmana Esri, he would be on such a spiritual high that it would cause the people who put him into Chem, which is her own brother, Gamliel, to pass away. Says the Gemara. Then on that day, his wife thought it was Rosh Chodesh, and she forgot that it wasn't Rosh Chodesh tomorrow, whatever. So she didn't stop him, and he ended up saying Tachnan, and she walks in and says, you killed my brother. Okay? So, 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 so happened. Why? The Blazer was a, was a very, very, very spiritual, uh, uh, an immense spiritual giant, and was not to be trifled with, was not to be taken lightly. Says the Gemara that the people who are remaining in the class, who have been there all day long, he's looking at them, his chilu their faces are coloring. They're like, don't know what's, what he's going to do with them. They're scared. You don't have a problem. Your guys are good. I have a problem with those that left. That they walked out of the church. I have a problem with them because they are giving up the eternal life to go focus on this worldly life. Remember, it's Yamtiv. There's a mitzvah to go eat. There's a mitzvah to have simchasiyah. No, that itself is too much focusing on this world. So there's a whole discussion in the Gemara about whether or not there is an idea of chetzi lachem and chetzi lachem on the holidays. Is it half for you and half for God on the holiday? Blazer doesn't agree with that opinion, but that is the halachic opinion that, in fact, on Yantif, you must be with your family. You must eat meat and drink wine. You have to have a normal, that is the halacha. In fact, somebody just learns all day and because he wants to bear a blessing, he's actually going against Jewish law. In any event, those are the, those are the examples where we see So, remember I said to you about one of the Gemars was a Gemar with Rav and Rav Amnuna. Rav Amnuna was davening too long and Rav went after him. Why are you davening so long? So, I want to go to a Gemar. I was very proud of myself today until I looked at my notes and I saw that I had already written this down from somebody else. So, very embarrassing to me, you know. I don't know if it's Al-Tashachinale Zigna, because it's been many, many years since I have looked at this, but I really thought it was my own Eigenavart. I'm going to say it as it's my own Eigenavart. I was very proud of it, even though clearly I must have once had it in my own conscience. So I, I, there's a Gemara in Erevin. The, the Gemara, is, there's a whole series of Gemaras about Lima Torah, and the Gemara says about, about the Talmud and the sky and beyond, the different things that one has, if one does, that the, the study of the Torah will be able to remain with you. So the Gemara says, the Torah says that Moses is, is adjuring the people to study Torah, not to think that the Torah is far away from you. That the Torah is an inheritance for all Jewish people. It doesn't make a difference where you're from, what you do. Torah belongs to all Jews. Everybody should study, no matter what. There are secular Bhante Medrash in Tel Aviv where they study Talmud. Fantastic. Everyone study Torah. The more Torah they study, the better. Why? Anybody who studies Torah, we have what to talk about. We know we have a three and a half thousand year old conversation. Everybody can discuss. We can discuss terms that are relevant to each other. But if somebody studies Torah, the other one doesn't know anything from Torah, then what do you have to discuss? So the Gemara says that Moshe is telling the Jewish people, he don't say that the Torah is in the heaven. Because you're going to say, how are you going to get to the heavens to go find the Torah? If the Torah is in the middle of the universe and you go far away, it takes you light years to get there, then it's not worth it. 
No one can have that ability to get it. And don't say, don't say that the Torah is in the distant oceans, that you're going to have to travel for months at a time like that student, you know, traveling for years at a time to be able to find Torah. No, no, no. Torah is right here, especially with the internet. It's available for anybody at any time. And you can have literally oodles and oodles of Torah. It's all available. It's also a candy now. Oodles. I don't know if anybody heard, but in any event, my kids like it. All right. So the Gemara says like this, two, a, a few different opinions on what this passing means. The Gemara says, Rava Omar, you know what it means? Loi Bashamayimi, the Torah is not in the heavens. Loi Timotzei B'mishim Magbi Daitzei Oleh Kashamayim. You're not going to find the Torah in somebody who is 40, like the heavens. In somebody whose spirit feels that he's so great that he's like, you know, in the heavens. And you're not going to find him somebody whose opinion of himself is so grandiose that it's like a wide expanse to see. You're not going to find Torah in such a person. Torah is found by the humble. Torah is found by the people who recognize their inadequacy, who recognize the fact that the Torah is so wide and so broad that there's so much information that no matter how much one studies and how long one studies, it's still always more to do and more to, more to learn. That's the opinion of Rava. Rabbi Yechanan Omar. And Rabbi Yechanan says, what does it mean? Similar. You're not going to find it by the egotistical. By the megalomaniacs, you won't find Torah. What does it mean that you're not going to have Torah over the seas, over the distant ocean? Torah is not situated somewhere far away. You're not going to find Torah, not by the merchants, who go traveling places and not by the, the local um, the local storekeepers who are always engaged in their business. Not by the people who are seafaring or going on seafaring voyages in order to be able to make do and not by those that are the merchants, the shopkeepers who are selling. What's that supposed to tell you? This is Rabbi Yechanan, right? That's supposed to remind you of the Gemara that we discussed about Ilfa and Rabbi Yechanan. Rabbi Yechanan is saying that you're not going to find Torah there. Right, you're not going to find it. Loi says the Masurah Hashas here on the side. Masurah Hashas says on the side, but but the Shildas has a different girsa, and in fact, it's a good word in Haitik Sedra because the Shildas is in Pashish Toldos. The Shildas in this week's Sedra reverses it. The Shildas says that Rava and Rabbi Yechanan are are to be switched. It's Rabbi Yechanan who's saying that you're not going to find the Torah by the egotistical, and Rava who's saying you're not going to find Torah by the merchants. Right? The Shilta switches the order. And the Hamak Shela, the Nitziv says, why is the, why is the Shiltas have a different girsa? Why is he putting Rava before, why is he putting Rabbi Yechanan before Rava? Because chronologically, Rabbi Yechanan is before Rava. So you should have the order of the sayings in the shas. If you study shas, um, um, you'll see that typically the chronology is there. You have, when you're listing the rabbis, you're going to list the ones in order of their, either their importance or in the order of their chronology. And so if we're listing Rava before Rabbi Yechanan, that's quite odd. It should be Rabbi Yechanan before Rava. Why? Because Rabbi Yechanan came before Rava. So therefore, says the Sheildas, the girsa is that Rabbi Yechanan is the one who says that you're not going to find Torah by the egotistical, and Rav is the one who says you won't find the Torah by the merchants. That's what the Nativist says to explain it. 
But I think not. I think that you have to go to this as a sponsor in the bounty, which is different than what you said. And I think the reason for that is because of this, because of this that we just said, namely that Rabbi Yechanan was faced with a dilemma about leaving the yeshiva. His friend and colleague decided to. He decided not to. Perhaps this is Rabbi Yechanan's own response to this idea. Should you go out to the world? Should you go out and travel on the voyages and nevertheless be a Tamil Perhaps Rabbi Yechanan is telling you his true opinion over here. Yes. When you have a student who's coming in for a day, I'm going to mollify him. I'm going to say nice things about him. I'm going to say, yeah, yeah, midrashan. Somebody who's learning Torah, even yeah, mechad b'shanas, ma'la lav ki'ilu lomad kolashanakule. I'm going to say he's like he studied all year. Sure, but the real opinion of Rabbi Yechanan is no. You're not going to find Torah there. That was my, you know, eigen of art. That was my own. I was proud of. Oh, and then I saw in my notes. Rabbi Uvin Margolis, who was a super genius, a photographic memory, an amazing, amazing scholar who passed away in 1971 in Israel. Bamish, a photographic memory. Um, he says the same. He says the same thing. And so it's really his part. I must have had it, like I say, in my unconscious. Um, Maybe if you're saw all the success of the mass, that's what you're correct. Ah, you're saying it's a change in the thing. Right, so we have it some to it. So, so, so what I was just saying is that sometimes we have in Shas that sometimes the Shas itself says this. In other words, sometimes the Shas itself says, look, this took place before. This is what we know as the Mishnah. So this is what took place earlier. And this thing took place after, after there was a change in the procedure. Uh, somebody realized something. And so this, there are two different recordings of the, of the Halakha because it took place at two different times. No, could be. That would also answer, you know, be able to answer the question. All right. So what I wanted to do, um, what I wanted to do was, um, what I wanted to do was, I mentioned last week, the, uh, um, the in the few moments that we have left, I wanted to, I, I, I discussed last week the Hakdam and the Chaya Adam and Chachmas Adam. So the Chaya Adam says this about this Gemara. The whole thing he's focusing on the 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 fact that he is a merchant that he has gone to. You know, all the, the fears in Leipzig that he has gone to, you know, uh, be a merchant all these years and he hasn't been studying Torah. And he felt very bad about himself that people might not want to, um, people that might not want to study his work. People might not want to study his book because they would feel like my book is, uh, is in a sense, um, not worthy because of the fact that it was not written by somebody who's always been studying Torah and giving up everything just to study Torah. So... Uh, in in uh, what do you call it? in uh, in his Hakdama to the Sefer Chachmasan that he wrote on Yeridea, he writes like this. He says, I know that there are whisperings against me, that there are murmurings about me. People are talking, right? When they when Shaul began to prophesy, really out of context, I don't want to get into it right now, but the, the Pasuk tells us that Shaul um, tried to kill David. And he sent, you know, groups of officers to try to go kill David. And each one of them gets caught up and is not able to do it. And then when Shaul himself goes to try, he gets caught up with these students of prophets. It's like a, a Jewish version of Hogwarts, right? The same way that there was been, um, a school for magic, there was a school for prophecy. 
prophecy and the Jewish understanding is generally speaking, not something that somebody just attains without effort. It has to be a sustained spiritual effort over many, many years to refine oneself, to refine one's spirit, to be able to get to a place where one is on such a spiritual high that one is able to attain and be attuned to that kind of spiritual frequency. So this is something that that show is now he was trying to kill David and he's getting stuck with this band of student prophets and he ends up prophesying and so people were saying mockingly Hagam so what the Chai Adam was saying about himself is that now that he's writing this safer about the about the Jewish law and he's being mocked and they're saying Hagam about him in other words, they're saying, you think you're a scholar? Or you think you have something to say to add to the conversation? <laughs> you're a joke. You're a merchant. We know what you are. So I, know, I know they murmur this about me. <laughs> For 15 years, he's been running around to the different fears. When did he, when did he learn? And the Torah itself says, The Torah says, And we learn out, It's not by the merchants. And I'm a merchant. And I'm traveling to all the different fears in Frankfurt and in Leipzig, all the different places. I'm traveling to the fears. So how could the Torah be found in me? That's what they murmur about me, he says. You should know my brother, he says. I've traveled far. It's true. But it was not, God forbid, to become a mass wealth. God is my witness. I am just simply trying to sustain my family. This is the tradition that I have in my family. Not to subsist and not to rely on the Torah knowledge in order to be able to sustain oneself. There are many people today, in fact, the wide majority of people that are on the rabbinic field today sustain themselves on Salaries that they get for being able to speak and promote and talk about Torah. Why? Because that is the nature of the world that we live in today. The Jewish community is strong enough to be able to provide for such people. And the Torah is wide enough that it needs to be studied all the time in order to be able to have proficient scholars. However, certainly, as we will see, that was not the tradition by everyone. And in his family, the tradition was to try and not use Torah as a way to be able to support oneself. To try to support oneself on the basis of one's own abilities in terms of whatever work one has, and to study just to study. So he says, although he does acknowledge that in the recent years, he's right, he, as an older man, he's writing that now I have started to be taking money for, for, for my halachic decisions. I've started to be paid because of the fact that I can, I'm no longer young. I can no longer go to the fears. I can no longer make any business. I've been learning. He says, I've been learning for years and years on end. He says, I learn even when I go to the fears. He's like, I learned at least a blot, at least a daf and a half of Gemara a day. He says, I'm not telling you this in order to show off. He's like, I'm just telling you that I never stop learning. He's like, even when I am in the middle of the business, even when I'm in the middle of the fear, I'm always thinking about my learning. I'm always thinking about questions and answers. It never leaves me for a moment. You should know. And he's saying this in order to be able to stifle the murmurings, in order to be able to shush 
the people who are saying things about him that are negative, that they don't want to study his work because they say you're not really a dedicated scholar. And he says that the, the Talmud says about a woman that if she doesn't get married for many years and she doesn't believe she's ever going to get married, she's given up on ever getting married. That if she ever gets married, she won't be able to have children. Whether it's true scientifically or not, that's not so much the point, but that is what the Talmud suggests. And the reason is because since she has no faith that she will ever get married, that she will ever have children, um, that in fact, if it surprisingly ends up happening opposite, she will not. But a woman who, in fact, always is pining to be married, always wanting to have children, doesn't make a difference how many years she doesn't get married. So eventually, she'll be able to have children when she gets married. Why? Because her mind was always set on it. She always had that as her actual desire. So he says the same thing is true when it comes to Tyra. Just because of the fact that for many years I was running around doesn't mean I ever didn't want to have Torah. Doesn't mean that I ever didn't focus on Torah. I always did. And even when I went on my travels, I always had a little bit of learning. So therefore, he says, now at my older age, when I have more time again to focus, I'm not running around. So that's where the Torah stayed within me. So as I mentioned last week, this, this idea was something that for me personally was always very, very relevant. With COVID, it slowed down. But in my younger years, not that I'm that old, but in my younger years, I had to travel a lot. You have to go see clients. You have to go to conferences. You have to go to the mother you know, ship. In my case, I had to go to London. And it was traveling all the time. And when you're traveling all the time, it like breaks you down. Not just physically, but spiritually. Because you go to a place where there's not a minion, there's not a quorum. So, you know, there were times that I would literally travel an hour to go be able to find one. But what if there wasn't? Like literally within an hour, there just simply was not. So then you don't have one. Okay, so you don't have one until you dive without one. And so I'll be in a situation where we're diving without a minion. And you don't have any books. And this is, you know, in those days, you guys, you know, probably some of you might know, like with the Blackberry, like that was like a really cool invention. But there was no like safari. There was no like whatever. So I had of my chlomish and that's it. I didn't have anything with it. I didn't have books. And I'd be sitting there like all day in meetings and like, and there was no minion. I'd feel very incredibly depressed. Very, very bad. It's like, this is, I'm, of course, I remember the Gemara. So I may not be a merchant running to Leipzig, but I'm effectively a merchant running around the world going on a plane to these places. There's no difference. So I would think to myself, he's right. Your Birchner was 100% right. I'm sorry, Ilfa had a photographic memory. Ilfa, like we used in the example of some weeks ago, he was like a mayor Sim. He was like, you know, the Meshachach, he had this photo. I don't have it. And I would feel terrible about myself. But I, when I came across the Chai Adam Takdama, I felt a little better. And the reason was because of the fact that what he's saying is you may not have at all stages of your life the same ability to study for hours on end, the same way that somebody has when they're 18 to 20 or five or whatever it is that they study in the yeshiva and they're doing it all day and night and you leave it and you're like, oh my gosh, now I'm studying for an hour a day. How can I be happy with myself? How can I feel good about myself? What he's saying is you have to be like that woman who doesn't give up on getting married, doesn't give up on having children. And so long as you have that, then when the time comes that you're able to slow down a little bit, when you're able to not travel so much, the Torah will come back to you. Oh, Somebody who always had a desire to keep on learning, the Torah will always be there for them when they have more, more, yeah. more. Yeah. 
Oh. All right, you go ahead. Have a good night.